Hello, Les Raymond here with the Mindful Movement. Whether you are about to enjoy one of Sarah's beautiful meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to remind our community that the best way to support the Mindful Movement is to support the companies that make this happen. Sarah and I are very picky about the companies we choose to work with, and we are grateful to have the relationships we have and to share them with our listeners. You can learn more about our affiliates through our website by clicking on the Favorites tab. We are excited to have recently added Sunlighten as an affiliate. They make state-of-the-art infrared saunas, and their founder, Connie, came on for a recent interview if you would like to listen. Our Sunlighten sauna has been a family favorite for over a decade. Some of our most popular affiliates are the grounding mats from Ultimate Longevity, which we sleep on every night, and the Apollo Neuro, which Sarah is now wearing daily to help manage stress. When you support these brands, you in turn are supporting the mindful movement and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for tuning in today for another episode. I got to speak with Dr. Chris Estes today. And he, among other things, practices functional medicine, which I'm always fascinated with. I always love hearing different approaches to the healing process. Passionate about healing, passionate about helping other people find their healing path. So any little gems I could pick up along the way to help that process is something that I value. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. Thanks again. All right, Dr. Chris Estes, thanks for joining me on the Mindful Movement podcast today. No, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So you're the co-founder of the Miami Beach Comprehensive Wellness Center. Did I say that right? Yeah, perfect. What do you guys do there? Well, um, our practice is me and my wife together. Uh, We actually met in medical school. Um, and she went and started a residency in uh, internal med and then actually wised up early and quit and went back to school and got her master's in Chinese medicine and acupuncture. So she's uh, she practices mostly on the Eastern medicine side, though we're both certified in functional medicine. Um, I'm a board certified OBGYN, um, but also got involved in functional medicine about six, seven years ago. Um, and we treat basically a wide variety of medical conditions. Uh, We like to call ourselves the 20th consult. Uh, We tend to take (laughs) patients who've seen all the other doctors and no one can figure it out. Like what's going on? I don't, I feel terrible. There's something wrong and no one seems to be able to figure this out or at least, or I'm not getting better um, with the conventional medical therapies. Um, So, you know, um, our practice, uh, our, our most, common, like the most of our patient population is folks with um, autoimmune problems, uh, chronic fatigue, chronic pain. Um, We do support cancer patients. So we do a lot of cancer support um, and we treat lots of um, chronic infections. So things like Lyme disease, Bartonella, Babesia, 
um, chronic viral illnesses, post-viral problems, post-viral fatigue, um, and things of that nature. And we really try our best to integrate the best of both worlds. So in Chinese medicine, there's a saying that it's best to walk on two legs. So it's like, you don't wanna throw out all the good stuff from Western medicine and biomedicine and you know those sort of things. But you also don't wanna forget about the Chinese medicine, the energetic and, and you know uh, energetic side of things, the biopsychosocial side of things, the spiritual side of things. And we like to pride ourselves on the fact that we have both our feet in each of those worlds so that we can integrate all of those things under one roof at the same time. Gotcha. Did you start out that way or did, cause you said you're an OBGYN. Did you start out the more traditional uh, method and then jump towards functional medicine for a reason? I I've heard in the past people saying like they hit a wall where they just feel like they don't have the toolkit to help people. Yeah, it's every, we all have uh, a story getting into this work because it's not taught in medical school or residency. That's for sure. Now I'm, I'm thankful for my medical training. I'm thankful for my residency and I'm, I'm thankful for the work I did, my colleagues that I had before, because I was uh, on the faculty of University of Miami for almost eight, a little over seven years. Um, and I was highly involved in academics. So, you know, I published research. I was the director of the clerkship for OBGYN. I was this, the director of the second year medical student module in um, reproductive endocrinology. Um, I was on curriculum committees, admissions committees, national committees for like, uh, you know, residency programs. And, you know, I even helped write questions for the boards. So it's like, you know, when we talk about functional medicine versus conventional medicine, I wasn't like drinking the Kool-Aid in conventional medicine. I was mixing the Kool-Aid. Gotcha. I was part of that establishment very deeply. Um, but really what I found was exactly that. Like I had patients that were on the medical merry-go-round. They went from specialist to specialist to specialist and they got a new diagnosis and maybe a new med and some fancy procedure. And they were seeing the best of the best and not getting better. And oftentimes just getting worse. And then we have, of course, had our own personal experiences. And that's another one I find in functional medicine. A lot of us have personal health problems that led us to this world. And I had some of my own. Um, my wife had a very difficult path, actually. It was really mostly her because she developed, she had Crohn's disease for years, which wasn't responding to anything. And then we figured out, well, you know, if you eliminate your food allergies and fix your microbiome and some other things along those lines, that gets better. We treated it also with a lot of herbs and med Chinese medicine and acupuncture. But then she developed uh, stage four thyroid cancer. And that was not responding to conventional therapy. Like she had a lump in her neck that didn't shrink with a big dose of radioactive iodine. I was like, yikes, okay, that's not supposed to have, that's supposed to work, right? It's supposed to be curable. So, you know, we started doing, we started learning about all the other things that you can do to treat cancer and, you know, with a variety of, you know, nutritional-based and um, IV-based therapies, we were able to put her cancer into remission, Crohn's into remission. And on this journey, we also learned that while we were being exposed to toxic mold, high levels of heavy metals. My wife was diagnosed with chronic infections, Lyme and Bartonella and Babesia, chronic viruses. At the time when we first started this odyssey, I was about 90 pounds overweight. I weighed about 250, 245 pounds. 
I was fatigued, tired, would sleep 13, 14 hours and wake up more tired than when I went to sleep. And I mean, my lifestyle had a lot to do with it because I was still in the conventional world taking a lot of overnight calls and, you know, long hours and terrible diet. I was eating in the hospital cafeteria every day. I mean, so that right there, that'll kill you <laughs> for sure. The stuff we feed sick people in hospitals is really, it's pretty bad. It's appalling. But, uh, you know, so I, I saw a functional medicine doc early on too, and realized that I had many nutrient deficiencies and he, he tested me for things. I mean, like I said, I was a university teacher, you know, I, I was at the cutting edge supposedly, and he ran labs on me that I didn't even know you could check. I was like, I don't even know what this is. Like, what is this dude? Like, I'm, you know, here I am university guy. Like I've never even heard of this. And, uh, you know, realized I had to change my diet, start some supplements, maybe, you know, like actually hit a little more exercise. And I mean, honestly, the first, the biggest thing for me was I realized I had a, I found out I had a gluten allergy and cut gluten out of my life. And I lost 20 pounds. I, I, that's all I did. Like, I just did that. Fortunately, I was like, it's, my path was much easier. I had a, a, a an easier response to go, gotcha. but I started looking at my family history and a lot of medical issues in my family with autoimmune diseases and cancer and uh, you know, cardiovascular disease. And I was only in my, you know, I was in my late thirties and already starting to feel like crap. And my blood pressure was creeping up and my, you know, my cholesterol was not good. And I was like, I am heading down a bad path. So I got to, I got to change this. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with that in 10 years, you know? So that's, that's kind of how we got into this. And it's like each year has been a learning path. We started off with the Institute for Functional Medicine and we went through both my wife and I got our IFMCP, the certified practitioner through IFM, which was great. And then we started studying with PILADS for, to learn how to treat Lyme and related infections. I did other training with people like Phil Boroscano and Dr. Richard Horowitz. And then I did training in mold with Dr. Shoemaker. And then I also, oh, okay. I also did training. He's from my neck of the woods. Yeah. In Maryland. Yeah. Awesome. yeah um, he's, he's a, he's a heck of a guy. Like he pioneer in the field, you know? It's interesting. I've, I've worked with a bunch of functional medicine docs for myself and my own health journeys. And one thing that's been made apparent to me is they just ask different questions that just generally seem more useful. Like, I feel like though the traditional, you know, Western care can work miracles, especially in acute situations, emergency, like, you know, car accidents, I mean, really miracles. And also it's like, they're not, it's not structured to ask the right questions. So they don't. And you mentioned going from specialist to specialist. Another thing I see is that because of that, um, they don't have the context, not that they don't have the context, they're just not zeroed in on the context of that holistic approach as you know, we're a, a holistic organism, you know, a system full of multiple systems intertwined. You, you see cholesterol go up for instance, and they see that as the problem. Whereas someone else might say, well, you know, why are they not converting thyroid? Uh, why are they not converting cholesterol to downstream products? What's the thyroid doing? But because the cardiovascular guy doesn't pick up the phone and call the endocrinologist when he has it, like they're just not asking nope. the right stuff. No, nope. your heart is right here, just a couple inches away from your thyroid, you know, and a couple inches the other direction down to your adrenals. Yeah. You know? And uh, my favorite example of this, and like I, 
I always knew there was something not quite right about the way we did things in conventional medicine because I was always a believer in Eastern medicine. And I used to always have the, the talk with the, I don't have a pill for you talk. I did that one a, a lot where people would come in with a complaint to my office and I'd be like, look, I know you're not feeling right. I know this isn't, you know, you need help, but like, I don't have surgery for you. I don't have a pill for you. I don't have a, 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 a test that's gonna help me with you from a conventional standpoint, but I know somebody who's got needles and herbs. And that person with needles and herbs can help you. Um, so I used to have that talk with people, but I just never really did it in my practice exactly for that reason, because just in conventional medicine, you're not set up to do it. You don't have the knowledge, you don't, and you don't have the time. Like you're in there, man, like booking 30, 30 patients in your clinic a day. You know, you got, you're just like, bam, bam, bam. You're lucky if you get three or four minutes to talk with your patients. And then you got 10 minutes of document, you got all this stuff to do. So to really get down into the nitty gritty of these things, it's um, it's it takes time. But the example I wanted to mention, this is a really funny one from medical school. My first year of medical school, or second year medical school, we have all little modules. So you do like the cardiology module, you do the endocrine module, and then you do like the op. We had an ophthalmology module, which was a relatively short one, a week or two, and they had small group sessions where you would go and talk to a specialist in that field. It was part of like the clinical experience with the thing. It was a really cool part of the curriculum. But I remember going to a, a thing with ophthalmology with, and I was at University of Miami, which Bascom Palmer is like the number one eye hospital, like for the last two decades or something, right? And the case was about um, glaucoma. And, you know, I had a question for the, the, the attending professor who was giving the small group about um, macular degeneration. And he says, oh, I don't really do that stuff. He's like, I'm an anterior chamber kind of guy. <laughs> I was like, the eyeball's this big, dude. It's tiny. <laughs> and like, you're at the world's best eye hospital. And like a first year, a second year medical student. I mean, like my level of knowledge is like, well, you know, tiny. You can't answer my question about macular degeneration. You can only tell me about the glaucoma because that's what you do. It's like, whoa, talk about sub, sub, sub specialized. It's like, I only do the, the half of the eye. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's crazy to not have a, at least a, a reasonable understanding of the entire organ that you're working on. I know it's amazing. Right? It's funny. I don't want to. I don't want to throw a family member under the bus, but I have a a cousin who's been a cardiologist for a long time. It's, you know, many decades. Has moved up the ladder and works at a prestigious hospital. And um, we were talking about cholesterol one day at a uh, like family event. And he said something about LDL. And I was like, what is LDL? And he said, it's bad. No, I was like, no, no, no. I mean, like, what is it actually? Like, why does it exist? What is it? And this is a guy that pulls plaque out of arteries for a living and doesn't know what he's pulling out. And he said, well, I'm not a, a lipidologist. So I'm <laughs> like, okay, okay, well, that's pretty intellectually lazy. Um, I mean, it'd be one thing if you're brand new at this, but yeah. you think the continuing education you've gotten and the experience for all these years, you would at least know what LDO is. So then, a couple like a week later, uh, one of the podcasts that I follow, you're probably familiar with Dr. Peter Tia. I've heard of him, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I listen to him here and there. I used to listen to him a little bit more regularly, but he was interviewing like 
his go-to lipidologist. So I was like, oh, this is interesting. Here's a two-hour conversation with a very well-respected doc interviewing a very well-respected lipidologist. And he, you know, this is an avenue that he uses to learn more about lipids. So I sent it to my cousin, say, hey, um, you know, if you wanted to learn a little something, here's a way. And he saw that it was two hours long. And granted, he has a demanding schedule. He's like, there's no way I have two hours. And I was thinking, you you should retire. Like, if you don't, if you don't know and you don't and you know that you don't know, yet you're still unwilling to learn when it's handed to you, you're it's probably time to hang it up. Like what yeah, what would your patients say if they knew that you wouldn't devote two hours to learn the something very fundamental to what you're working on? It's sad, right? It's, it's sad. like it's sad. And it's, you know, I think it's part of the burnout that yeah, maybe get in medicine. Man, at two hours, what's your commute to work? I mean, like you can put yeah. it on the car. Yeah, 10 literally. minutes a day if you had to. Like yeah, 20 minutes a day for a week and you'll get there. It's not that hard. And trust me, a lot of this, you know, well, I don't know. I, I think that um, the physicians in, in conventional med, um, I don't think they're necessarily poorly intended, but it's it, it's just, there's a, such a mindset about like, this is my turf. This is what I do. And like, I know this little bit of my turf, you know, 10 miles deep and an inch wide. Right. And that's what they focus on. The other thing is like, because I was in, so deeply involved in academics and on all this sort of stuff and went to lots of conferences, one thing that also kind of pushed me out from this is I was getting bored at my conferences because I would go to the same conference. I would go to the conferences every year. You know, you go to the, ACOG or AAGL or like, you know, Society for Family Planning and, you know, all these, you know, the, the usual conferences I would go to. And it was like the same rotation of speakers saying the same thing they said last year with some, with one extra slide on the end for last year's update. And it's this echo chamber of like, I'm in the group and then there's, you know, the expert on the podium. And then, you know, we kind of just agree back and forth. Now, of course, there's always little controversies and politics between all the experts. Every that's no secret in medicine. <laughs> People have become more aware of that in the last couple of years to realize how controversial medicine can be. But um, I, I I felt like I was just listening to a broken record. And but everybody in the head in the room is just nodding their heads like this, you know, you know, and like not really challenging to move to the next level. And the point you made about like well why is this thing happening to the person that's the question that doesn't get asked you know all right it's just so obviously basic and fundamental i would love to hear more about your wife's situation but i also feel like that could be a pretty long rabbit hole but i mean you threw that out kind of sure. nonchalantly that she Healed, she healed from stage four thyroid cancer? Correct. Um, yeah. That's and she had incredible. A, it was quite a journey, too, because she had a lump in her neck. She could feel it was small, but she could feel it because she's very sensitive and she's very aware of her body. Some people, it's like you can hit them with a sledgehammer and they don't know that their foot is broken, you know? <laughs> Did Other, that look like a goiter or is it? No, I mean. It was hardly even palpable. Like you could barely gotcha. feel it with your fingers. I mean, it wasn't like she had like a big thing. I mean, you couldn't okay. see it. Even on ultrasound, they were like, well, this is kind of borderline size to biopsy. 
and I had we had to like kind of like you know maneuver to get a biopsy and then the biopsy came back like kind of inconclusive like maybe yes maybe no she saw like two different surgeons and they were like no nah, just leave it there's nothing wrong with you it's you're just being hysterical like it's nothing there and finally I got her to see an endocrine surgeon that I knew at UM who was a colleague of mine I was like listen you know like this is just fishy you know can you take a look and he was like well I don't think it's cancer but um he's like I'll take out half your thyroid and she goes, okay, let's do that. So we go to the, she goes to the OR, they take out half her thyroid, comes back aggressive metastatic to the local lymph nodes, thyroid cancer, poorly differentiated. And because of her age, it made it to stage four. So, and, and the lymph node involvement. So he's he, like, he was my, the surgeon was shocked. And he goes, this, he's like, wow. He's like, well, now we have to go back and take out the other half. So you could take oh. out an entire thyroid? Oh, sure. And oh. it doesn't grow back or? Mm -hmm. Well, here's the weird thing about taking out your thyroid. Like some thyroid tissue may remain because it, it's because of the way the operation works. So like you may remain some thyroid gland. Um, generally people, after they have their thyroid removed for whatever reason, they're going to need thyroid hormone for the rest of their life um, because they're not going to produce enough. However, with thyroid cancers, uh, just like any cancer, you know, it can grow back. Um, there's micrometastasis into lymph nodes and, you know, with thyroid, it can metastasize into even other tissues. So, you know, that's why with cases like that, usually also give a systemic therapy like radioactive iodine, which she did. So the radioactive iodine gets taken up by any thyroid cells because iodine is the principal mineral in, um, uh, thyroid hormone. So basically it takes up this radioactive iodine and destroys it. Okay, that's the that's the idea and i mean the good news is it it usually works like it's it's a very effective therapy um but in her case she still had this persistent lump in her neck like a lymph node that just wouldn't go away and it was firm and kind of fixed and she was like should we biopsy this thing should we take it out should we do something and everybody's like no 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 just leave it alone so you know we were doing other sorts of herbal acupuncture and nutritional things and then we started doing some research about other ways to address malignancies. And we came across alpha lipoic acid. So um, alpha lipoic acid is a potent antioxidant. Um, it works primarily in the liver along with glutathione and vitamin C. So like it's part of the electron transfer between glutathione and vitamin C, that whole cycle of recycling reduced glutathione. Mm -hmm. Alpha lipoic is in that too. But if you get so, alpha yeah, go ahead. So glutathione is used to recycle vitamin C and it, oh, or is it the other way around? I did. I didn't do my homework, man. Okay. My, bio, my biochemical pathways are. But it, are so awful. it's involved. ALA, ALA is involved with. ALA is in there. I can't, I can never remember who recharges who. Okay. But it's like, okay. Alpha lipoic glutathione and vitamin C, they pass the electrons around. And I'm gotcha. pretty sure it's a vitamin C that, that re recycles glutathione. But I'm sure you're going to have a really smart listener who's going to write in the comments like, no, it's the other way around. <laughs> and <laughs> I'll tell you, in there too. Okay. I, will tell I, haven't, I haven't heard much about alpha lip. I've heard the word, but I've never double clicked that. So um, a, I'm interested to do a little more oh, homework after this. It's a fascinating molecule. Um, it, it it works in that whole cycle. Now, the other thing with alpha lipoic, just for our listeners out there, if anybody decides they want to play with it, 
Um, be sure you take B-complex while you take your alpha lipoic acid because your, your alpha lipoic acid, that whole cycle and the, and the other functions that alpha lipoic acid serves are going to increase mitochondrial metabolism. So therefore it's going to increase your utilization of B vitamins. So gotcha. I always give a B complex along with alpha lipoic and you want to make sure your B vitamins are replete before you do alpha lipoic acid. But when you give alpha lipoic acid in high doses in the IV, it's actually been shown to be an effective adjunct therapy for several types of cancer. Um, so does it become like a pro-oxidant? Yeah, high dose, kind of like vitamin C is an antioxidant, mm -hmm. but in a high dose can be a pro-oxidant? Slightly different mechanism than high dose vitamin C. Um, the other way alpha lipoic seems to work is that it, it's a potent detox um, stimulant. Um, it also helps remove heavy metals. It actually works almost like chelation. So it's particularly good for mercury. Um, so people who've got elevated levels of mercury, we all yeah. always put them on alpha lipoic and we can do alpha lipoic IV as well. Yeah, I think I've heard it in that context uh, of, of mercury. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she, she did these things. Yes. Um, and then it just started to chip away at the lump or? I'm telling you, we did three or four IVs of a good dose alpha lipoic acid in the lump in the way. Oh, that's literally shrank. And like, and every now and then she'll get it start to come back a little bit. And we hit her and she takes the alpha lipoic IV again and it goes away. So it does raise the question, what's driving it to come back? Oh, my poor wife. Oh, Emily's got it. She's our most complicated patient. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I don't want <laughs> to too she, much of it. I, there's a lot of things I wanted to touch on. I, I just sure. wanted to hear a little bit more. I don't want you to put someone else's whole story out there. It's okay. But, uh, She's open about it. And she'll, she actually, if you ever want to talk to her, she'd be happy to tell you the whole thing. Okay. Well, maybe that's the way to do it. Maybe we'll do a follow-up and um, have that personal experience of that. Cause it's, I'm, I am um, always inspired by like significant healing stories, like things yeah. that you're supposedly not supposed to be able to heal from. And then people do. Yeah, me too. Um, me too. So you went, uh, you said you get a lot of Lyme patients there. That's something that I personally have dealt with. I was feeling sick one day, was on a massage table and the therapist said, um, did you get hit in the back of the leg? And I knew right there when she asked it, I was like, is there a bullseye on my leg? And, and like three seconds later, there's this pause. And she said, yeah. Oh. And I hopped up and I was like, take me to the urgent care right now. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> naked hopping up from the massage table like i gotta go now um and then that set off a cascade of just some crazy health issues wow. and i which i really think um stemmed more from the three weeks of antibiotic i took i feel like the lime was knocked out pretty quick i have a question for you because you see a lot of lime folks. And I want to get into some of the traditional therapies. And I know you said, I saw on your site and you mentioned that you're big into ozone and I definitely want to touch on that today. But um, with Lyme, we know it's like a tick-borne illness, but I've heard a couple things. Many people that get it that never saw the tick and this 
all too common story that people get Lyme at a time of stress, which leads me to believe, can you get bit when you're a kid? It's just in there dormant. And it's the stress that triggers either like the immune suppression that allows the opportunity for the bacteria to expand or, or take advantage or, or something along the lines is you're, you're shaking uh, your head. You're, you're on the right track. Okay. What's your so, take on all that? So several number one is, yeah, that unremembered tick bite that happened when your immune system was not so bad or the amount of bacteria, bacterial pathogen that you received in that tick bite was not strong enough to produce a significant reaction or the reaction you had was so mild that it just didn't like, oh, I went camping, I came back, I had a little cold and then I got better. Like literally, like that's what it could be. Um, you know, or it's misdiagnosed. I've heard that too, where people said, oh, you know, you really dig into it and you're like, oh, I had this weird cellulitis and they treated me with oxacillin and it got better. And it's like, okay, you know, that cellulitis was probably a tick bite. Um, and amoxicillin is like partial treatment for Lyme. So it's like, well, you kind of have treated it. Um, the other thing is I think people, there's also underdiagnosed congenital transmission of Lyme and associated pathogens, meaning you got it in utero oh. and you don't even know. Um, and those actually are some of our sickest patients. Like they, they, they usually give a history of being like, I was sick from the time I was a kid. Like I had, you know, weird stuff. Like I had migraines when I was like four years old. Like that's strange, you know, why does a four or five year old kid have migraines? It's very unusual, um, you know, or they were always getting ear infections. They always had recurrent viral things. That's one. The other one is there are other modes of transmission that have been documented that are not so easy to track. So that's other insects. Okay. So even mosquitoes. Now I don't want to freak people out. Like, you know, every mosquito bites Lyme. It's not. Okay. But that's been documented that, you know, other insects can carry Borrelia burgdorferi and other species of, of stealth pathogen. The other thing is I think people often are, are co-infected and don't realize it. And that might be like, since you shared your story, you know, sometimes you get the, the classic bullseye rash and, okay, I took coverage that got some Borrelia, but then I also got Bartonella at the same time. And if you don't, if you weren't covered for the Bartonella, like the Bartonella could take hold and become chronic and that kicks off a whole inflammatory cascade. Right. But there's also like, I'll, I don't want to freak people out either. And one thing I think to connect with is there's a lot of people that have these that aren't sick. Oh, so. Yeah. So if like yeah. and ideally uh, a robust immune system just handles these things, keeps it in check, which makes me really think about that whole stress in your life. Like it happened during a divorce or lost a loved one, or like for me, it was around a real stressful time too. And I, I don't think that's a coincidence. It's not, you're absolutely right. And we see that a lot where it's something else. Like I was okay. Then, you know, I think I had a tick bite, then I lost my job, then, you know, I was in this major car accident driving home one day. And like, after that, I was never the same. And it was like this series of events that brought it out. Because the interesting thing about, you know, I, we firmly believe, I'm, I'm saying this for me and my wife and many other people in, you know, the world, this is where the, the sort of difference in our approach comes in. I believe that all things are sentient 
in some way, shape, or form. Everything, you know, whether it's a human, a dog, a cat, you know, a vegetable, a plant, a tree, a bacteria. It has some degree of consciousness. It's not the same as our consciousness, so we may not recognize it immediately, but it has a consciousness. And I, I believe these, these, these pathogens, when we talk about Lyme and stealth pathogens in general, so that's your Borrelias, your Rickettsias, your Bartonella, Babesia, all these guys, they don't want to kill the host. They just want a place to live. They may make their host absolutely miserable and you know even sometimes shorten the lifespan of the host but they don't generally kill people quick now you'll read case reports about fulminant infections like lyme carditis myocarditis and stuff like that where there's you know really sick you know and life-threatening illness associated with these infections but the overwhelming majority they're, they're chronic and they live in very small numbers relative to other bacteria. Like, I mean, it's imagine if you have a strep throat and like someone looks in your throat and like your tonsils are big and huge and full of pus and blah, you know, if that's like, you know, a teaspoonful of bacteria, the amount of bacteria you get with Lyme infection is like a drop, half a fraction of a drop. I mean, it's like, you know, tiny numbers. So because they exist in such small numbers, they're able to evade the, that's one of the ways they evade the immune system and they set up shop and they live in parts of your body that are relatively immune privileged, meaning your immune system just doesn't have access to them. Like that's why people get the joint problems and the tendon stuff. They'll, there's good evidence that some of these pathogens, particularly Borrelias and um, Bartonellas, they live in the skin. Like, even skin that doesn't have lesions. There's the classic streaks from Bartonella. You may have heard people talk about, they look like yeah. stretch marks, but they're not stretch marks. Right. The Bartonella streaks, they'll live in there. But even in skin that has no lesion, you can, in patients who are, who are carriers or chronically infected, you can identify the organisms in there. Now that's not easy to do and you can't do it with just like a regular H&E stain. So if you take a biopsy and you send it for a regular pathology, they're not gonna find it. Like you gotta really know what you're looking for to find them. But, uh, you know, it's the, the immune modulation that happens that causes the symptoms to come out. And a lot of the symptoms that people are experiencing are actually the downstream consequences of that infection rather than the, like the bug itself. Like some kind of cy systemic cytokine storm or whatever. Precisely. Precisely. It's exactly what it is. And, you know, cytokine storm, it, you know, we want to be total semantics it doesn't usually it doesn't always quite rise to that level but that's exactly what it is it's just like some kind of low grade Correct. inflammatory thing coming on exactly it's dysregulation of what your inflammation is supposed to be what your inflammatory system is supposed to be doing so it's basically heading the wrong way instead of a healthy way gotcha so a lot of what and like and and so a lot of what i do when it comes to treating these chronic infections because the majority I'm, I'm in miami miami beach florida uh, and i have seen bullseye rash um, you know, erythema migrans acquired in South Florida. So like people say, oh, there's no Lyme disease in Florida. Uh-uh, no, there is. There's less than like upstate New York. <laughs> it's not as common, but we have it. I mean, even on Miami beach, I saw it on someone. 
So like acute acute bullseye rash. Right. And they were only here. So I know they got it here. Um, so, and if that doesn't start freaking out our South Florida <laughs> residents, well, it should. <laughs> but ultimately, it's a reason to just get healthier. Yeah. Because if you're healthy, it's not a big deal to get. I mean, there's so much specter. We live in a Petri dish. Like there's so much. So the, you know, reducing, you're doing all the things that allow you to just, um, you know, express your health as best you can will ultimately help you deal with that stuff. One thing that also seems to be somewhat consistency, consistent, I hear, and I have a, a theory, um, is people get Lyme and they go down a path and not that far later they say, and then I realize I had mold toxicity. And I'm thinking, did you already have the mold to some degree? You went on antibiotics. You killed the bacteria that was in your gut that was keeping the, the mold and parasites and all the other things, opportunistic bugs in check. All your, your police force, you killed your police force. So it's like, it just leads to it because you just went on antibiotics for a month. So candida had a chance to spread. And then out comes yeast. And now it comes yeast, yeah. And some of and like with yeast comes all the other mold and fungus. They live in colonies. I mean, we talk about candida overgrowth or whatever, but you know, these guys never live alone. Like there's always a bunch. Now, there there do seem to be genetic predispositions or sensitivity to both chronic infections like Lyme and mycotoxins. So some people will be exposed to mycotoxins and they kind of just run right through, like they don't seem to bother them very much if at all, unless it's incredibly high levels, you know. Is that because the genetics are, is it related to the, like uh, detox pathways where you just get stuff out better? Correct. I mean, the mechanisms, that's that's a good one sentence summary of a of like, you know, a book's worth of information. Yeah, it's like, it had, there's HLA typing you can check. There's specific types of HLA types that have been associated with both of these things. DR I think my DR. functional doc did that. I think when he, it's funny, I got the Lyme, he's treating me. And then one day I was, one day he pulled out the eye chart and uh, was it visual contrast? Yeah, VCS. VCS. He pulls that out and I'm yeah. like, what the heck test is this? And for the listeners, it's basically like this card, kind of like an eye exam where you see how far down the list you could read. But instead of the numbers or letters getting smaller, it's more of like black and white lines and the uh, it it gets fainter and fainter and your ability to pick up which direction they're pointing is a representation of some part of your optic nerve or something that mold seems to have a interaction with so he i, I failed this test he, he does poor i do poorly and he's like i think you might have mold exposure go get your house checked so i did and of course it was like tons of it and um that was that was interesting, but he yeah. meant one of the things he did was he checked my HLA. So that's a gene pathway, HLA? HLA stands for human leukocyte antigen. Okay. It's specific, pro, it's a profile of different proteins on the surface of white blood cells. Um, and yeah, the way that you get your HLA type is genetic. So it's-, it's But not that tells you how efficient you might be at getting rid of some of these toxins or- so, I mean, I'm not an expert in that field to know exactly what it's telling us, but I okay. can tell you that there are certain HLA types that have been associated with 
susceptibility to chronic infection and susceptibility to mycotoxin illness. And gotcha. Okay. So exactly how that works out. I'm not sure. And honestly, I'm not quite sure how much people really know why it's the case. Um, but it's definitely an immune, it's a, it's a marker that lives in the immune system. So that really makes sense for the chronic infection stuff. Well, if my right. white blood cells don't really recognize these pathogens or kill them very efficiently, then I'm going to be more likely to carry it chronically or develop significant disease as a result. And how it relates to biotoxin illness, I'm not sure exactly what the, the biochemical pathways are. Um, but again, that was uh, that, that's been described for a while. And it's just another just another tool in our toolbox to say, well, is this person potentially susceptible to this illness? Gotcha. But just so you know, I've seen it go both ways where people had the HLA type and they weren't particularly affected. And I've had people who didn't have the HLA type who were really sick with mold. So gotcha. And so the important thing really, it's not going to change what you do to try to get better anyway. So how, not and much. I think, I think that's one of the downfalls of functional medicine. There's a lot of potential tests and you could go down rabbit holes with it that don't even change what you're going to do anyway. So save your money and just start getting better. Well, that's everybody. I think of it a little like a disco ball. So there's like a million little mirrors on the disco ball and it turns around. We're all looking at the same ball. Okay. But it's different angles. I'll give you a good example. I had a patient who I've been seeing for various things, you know, mostly is like hormonal stuff and like, you know, a little detox support. No, not, not a, even a seriously chronically ill person. And, um, you know, I had them on a regimen of supplements, you know, to help support, um, you know, energy pathways, detox pathways, you know, exact things weren't very important. And then they went and saw another doctor, which I encourage. I don't, I'm like, please seek other opinions. Like, you know, I do not hold the, you know, everlasting truth of anything. Someone might think of something I didn't think of. And like, so they went to another doctor and then they did a whole separate workup that was genetic. Like it was one of these sort of, you know, SNP panels, you know, where they do all the SNPs and blah, 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 blah. And um, they sent me back the thing. They're like, oh, I saw this doctor and here's all my SNPs and you can put this in my chart. And here's the plan they recommended. What do you think? And he landed, lined up my plan that I had based on like toxin testing, microbiome testing, various inflammatory markers, other nutrients. That's how I based my plan. This other person based their plan on his genetics. If you put the plans side by side, they were like the same. Oh, interesting. I was like, look, I was like, great. His plan's good. Look at what I was giving you and look at what this person gave you. Do you see the similarities? They're like, yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. I'm like, yeah, because like your genetics then caused you to have abnormalities on these labs that I saw. Right. So I treated, I treated those. That's cool. And it works, a lot of times it works out that way. Sometimes you get surprised, like, you know, you check something and you're like, oh, wow, look at this, you know, or you get a good explanation, like particularly around things like vitamin A and vitamin D, like there's some interesting stuff where people don't absorb well, they don't metabolize it well, they got to get extra. And that, that explains why your vitamin D never comes up. Right. I've had some scenarios like that where I've had symptoms and I've worked on stuff and then i've got genetic stuff that showed that there's a reason that nutrient like especially with like choline is one that sticks up sure. where it's like oh no wonder i need like insane amounts of choline yeah. and it was like the genetics kind of confirmed what was happening on the absolutely. the other side where it's just going off of like symptoms and such and absolutely um so 
it's What's I think that? it's my my surgeon background. I like to find something like kind of like take it out, go after it. So I do like the, I look at toxins and infections, inflammatory markers and stuff like that. And I don't really look at genetics up front very often, if at all. I mean, there's some genetic tests that I will do up front on people depending on their risk factors. And so I don't use that stuff so much. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to figure it out another way. I don't think I, I don't, and I, because I, I'll be honest, I just don't really love doing that test. Like I just, I prefer to talk about other things. Gotcha. But then if you talk to my wife, my wife loves genetics. Like she loves it. So people are like, I really want to do my genetics. I'm like, go see Emily. There you like, go. Let her yeah. do it. I was like, she loves that stuff. I was like, and she likes talking about it. And I'm like, okay, good. Emily, she's good at that. I'm good at this. We'll, we can share. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a great balance to have working under in the same Over office. Here. Yeah. Um, let's get into some of the therapy. So we, you mentioned Lyme and like mold and biotoxin is a common thing you deal with. And in my experience, I think there's just a ton of people dealing with stuff that leads to these like low grade and sometimes like really acute, but like this mystery illness and they can't point their finger out. And like we said, the, the Western medical model is just a little like ill equipped for. Um, and, and one of the things is that some of the treatments are really inexpensive or you can't patent them. So they're not integrated into those systems because Correct. those businesses require a lot of revenue to stay afloat. Um, and you mentioned that you work with ozone. I do. And that's been an interesting one for me that I have some firsthand experience that um, has been at times like a game changer. And I don't think we've ever really talked about it on this podcast. Can you oh. talk a little bit about why somebody would be interested in looking at ozone? Sure. So, I mean, Ozone is a special form of oxygen. So ambient oxygen is O2, ozone is O3. So it's three oxygen molecules stuck together instead of two. Ozone um, at you know atmospheric conditions is a highly unstable molecule. So it rapidly dissociates into O2 plus a free oxygen molecule, okay? And that free oxygen molecule is even more unstable. So it's looking for another free oxygen molecule to make another another molecule of, uh, sorry, that free oxygen atom, should I say, is looking for another oxygen atom to make another molecule of O2, okay? But the magic of ozone actually comes in that chemical reaction where ozone is passing electrons back and forth between its atoms, which creates an oxidative process. And oxidation is the same sort of thing that, same sort of process that we get when we exercise. So when you exercise, you get a little bit of what we call oxidative stress. Now, too much oxidative stress is not so good. We also hear about oxidative stress. Hey, didn't I hear like last week, the lipidologist talk about how oxidation is bad for my lipids? <laughs> like, yes, too much oxidation, not so good for your lipids. But just a little bit is a stimulant, okay? For your mitochondria, for your immune system, and it is also directly antimicrobial. So like microbes, like viruses and bacteria don't particularly like that oxidative stress. They don't withstand it well because they don't have the proper mechanisms inside of their cells to actually fight it, whereas our cells do. So what happens when we do something like what we call major autohemotherapy, MAH, that's when we draw blood out of the body and we expose it to 
a very metered dose of ozone, okay? Inside either a bag, which we call like a single bag, or we do it inside of a little jar, which is called, um, when we can do multi-pass ozone, which means we run the blood in, in and out of the jar several times. Um, you may have heard of the 10 pass treatment where they run the blood in and out 10 times. Um, and then after the blood is exposed to the ozone and oxygen, we run it back into the arm, okay? Back into the same vein. And what this is actually generating is a light oxidative stress inside of the blood, which produces chemical compounds that we call lipoxides. And the lipoxides are what actually do the work. And the lipoxides will exist in your body for anywhere from a few hours to a day or two. So wait a second, can I pause you there? Are the ozone stimulates our body to make lipoxides or is it a product of the ozone just reacting with something that becomes a lipoxide? It's the product of the ozone reacting with the membranes on cells that causes the formation of the lipoxides. And those lipoxides are what stimulate all those processes that I mentioned. So it helps your mitochondria to work more efficiently. It helps repair their membranes. It improves their production of ATP. It basically gives your immune system a pope. So easy way to think about it. It's like, hey, immune system, wake up, go do your job. Like, see that bacteria over there? See that yeast over there? See that virus? Go kill it, okay? See that cancer cell? <laughs> go kill that cancer cell. But that free oxygen molecule or atom, Yes. because you have O3 and then the it's unstable. The third one comes off. Yes. That in itself can destroy a, like a pathogen, pathogenic cell or critter? Sure, yeah. No, because like the oxidative stress that's generated from the free oxygen radical and those electro and the lipo, all this sort of stuff, all those reactions that are occurring very quickly. I mean, like this happens fast. We're talking happens in seconds. Um, it, it generates a whole cascade of reactions. So what I tell people about ozone, it's kind of like a spark plug in an engine or kind of like pushing the first domino in a row. So the, the ozone comes in pushes the first domino, and then it generates a long reaction of processes in the body that do all of those functions, which is why it's like when you read about ozone therapy and like, well, what can you treat ozone with? Well, ozone's not FDA approved to treat anything, okay? But it's had demonstrated, you know, application for chronic infections, for various kinds of toxicity for cardiovascular disease, for chronic wounds, for cancer, you know, all sorts of stuff. acute viral infections. It helps with that too. And the reason why is because it's not, it's not like a drug that has a specific target. What it's doing is just allowing all of the natural, normal body processes to work better. The other side product, if you will, of doing the ozone is that your blood becomes hyperoxygenated. So like you get a bunch of extra oxygen into your blood that then runs back. And of course, that extra oxygenated blood goes everywhere in your body. It goes to your heart, goes to your brain, goes to your liver, goes to your kidneys. So when your body gets an extra dose of oxygen, great. Your tissues like oxygen. So ozone is 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 a great adjunct to therapies doesn't really it makes everything else you do work better 
So I always emphasize that to folks. It's like, well, I can't treat your Lyme with just ozone. So like, we're going to do our supplements. We're going to do our herbs. We're going to do all of our other therapies that we need to address underlying toxicities or whatever else we've discovered. And then we put ozone on top as like an adjunct that allows your body's systems to function even better. Now in the acute phase, it is also useful to help. It will help kill organisms. So like if someone comes in with a, with a bullseye rash, like EM, I, I encourage them to do ozone. Like now, if, it, if they don't, de if their detox pathways aren't free flowing at that time, is, <laughs> can that be, can that backfire doing ozone, something so powerful as that? Anything can backfire. Gotcha. A, 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 a pill of glutathione can, I've seen a pill of glutathione put people on the floor because they were not ready for it. Like they took one glutathione, they're like, oh my goodness, I'm never touching that stuff ever again. Gotcha. I, was, I was sick for two days. So I did, I that. did that. I, I don't remember it called MAH, but I remember I was in LA. I, um, this was a, during the time where I was still feeling pretty crappy. And there was one of these fancy spa places that you go and you sit in a fancy zero gravity chair in a pretty room with plants and they a nice music's on. Yeah, and they, yeah. they hook this stuff up. You see your blood come out. They shoot it with the ozone. It turns bright red and, you, and they yes. lift the bag up. It flows back in. And um, it was it felt great. And then later it felt like it might have been too much, but it led me down a path where I and ultimately and it was expensive. So like I understand it has its place. And also I'm I like to tinker and I like to tinker at home like and I it needs to be not everything, but the th most, you know, I'm looking for something reasonably priced um, <laughs> and I wind up purchasing like a home ozone generator and it was a little bit upfront. It was like a thousand bucks. But the treatment over time was like two pennies. Like it was in, it was a nominal cost to get a treatment once you had the device. Do you use that or recommend that to, or also to your folks? So I don't encourage anyone to try to ozonate their own blood at home. Um, Not their blood. I mean, yeah. so let me clarify that. Rectal, rectal we ozone? use different, yeah. So I've done... Yeah. Rectal, I've done nasal and I've done the ear insult. I think it's called sure. insulation. Insulation, sure, sure, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah, don't try your own blood. You'll find people that 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 talk about it or they'll do direct IV ozone where they put a butterfly needle and then they shoot ozone gas straight into their vein. Um, yeah, you it's not a great Sounds idea. risky. Yeah, you can hurt yourself if you do that wrong for sure. Like wind yourself up in the emergency room or worse. Um, I've had a very positive experience with using ozone personally, so like when people want, and like, there's some people I have that really, really want to do ozone, but they don't have good veins. And like, no matter what, I mean, I, there's, you need a good vein to do ozone or else it's just to do blood ozonation. That is because if right. you don't have a good vein, I can't, I can't draw it out and put it back in. It's just not going to work. So if those folks rectal ozone works great and you can do it safely at home. Be, as long as you know the appropriate settings and you don't give yourself a too high of a dose. So, you know, usually we'll have people do anywhere between 20 to 40 gamma, which is 
So um, that refers to like a concentration. Concentration, gamma. exactly. 20 to 40 gamma, which is a cubic, is the number of milligrams per cubic ml is what that, so that's what a gamma is. Milligrams per is. cubic ml. And then okay. people will place anywhere between, you know, at a very small dose, like 50 cc's up to like 200 cc's of air of the, of the ozonated stuff, of the ozonated gas. And this can be done, you know, a home generator um, with an oxygen tank. And 200, uh, just for the listeners, that's about one fart. That's <laughs> a big fart. But yes. a big, <laughs> and maybe I, two I, farts I, worth. Yeah, it's a, maybe a couple of farts, you know. Yeah, and, uh, and if you really get it good, you know, you can really rip it off for 10, 15 <laughs> seconds, you know. Um, but uh, I, I've done it myself. Um, and it, it what happens with that is that your your rectum has a very rich blood supply, lots of blood down there. And the, the, the large intestine, the, the large and small intestine drain their venous supply, the drainage of those, of those organs goes directly to the liver through what's called the portal vein. So like you're basically giving a dose of ozone into the circulation that goes straight to your liver. Okay, so what as you give that rectal ozone, you're going to basically give ozone to your liver. Okay, um, and, and I, that's where I felt it kind of support my natural detoxifications. I oh, do have a lot of genes that say you're not so great at getting rid of the gunk. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, do do which, you know, it sounds crazy. It's super simple. It takes like a minute. It's literally like one minute. And um, but I've felt that that would trigger like that cascade a temporary like upregulation of my liver's detox that you know 99% of the time was a very positive oh sure outcome. I, it's been very helpful for people um and i i i don't discourage that i mean that's fine if you do it safely and you know you, you what about it. um i'm sorry what about drinking the water have, do you uh, sure. do you have any thought because i this is another thing that i thought about is if if someone has and i've done it but it's been a long time i don't really remember the outcome i got from that but if i i know that small intestinal bacterial overgrowths or fungal growths are common. And I wonder if that is a better way to get ozone to that area. That's a really good question. SIBO as small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, that's like a whole other podcast, man. I treat a lot of SIBO. I'm like, that one's, that's tricky. Um, but uh, doing ozonated water uh, is good for your dental and gum health because it's going to get anaerobic bacteria that are causing gum disease. Um, we used to always give it to, to our dogs. Um, if your dog, if your pet's breath smells bad, give them ozonate their water. Um, and like, it helps with bad dog breath because it's killing off bad bacteria. Um, you're not going to get a real strong effect systemically from that because what you're going to get is more like a local effect. So like, as you drink it, um, the ozone is going to rapidly dissociate and it's going to get bacteria like in the, um, in the mouth and upper GI tract. Um, if you really wanted to get ozone into the intestines, the way to do that is with ozonated oil. Okay. So you can buy ozonated oil pills, olive oil or sunflower oil. There's a couple of companies out there that, that make good quality organic ones. 
And you can take those and that oil that's frozen. And when you open the bottle of these pills, you smell it. It's like, whoa, that's really strong. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, just as an aside about ozonated oil, we're talking about this DIY stuff. When I first got my ozone machine, I was like, I was going to, I was going to get into ozone. Like this is like five, six years ago. I was like, oh, I can't wait to start doing ozone. And I go to my training and I'm like, oh, how do I make ozonated oil? And like the experts in the room go, you buy it. (laughs) Don't make your own ozonated oil. You are basically making napalm in your office. So if you, if you look at how they make ozonated oil, it has to be done in under a flame suppressing hood because even a small static spark in the presence of all this ozone can ignite and then you will basically explode the oil and hot burning olive oil goes all over everything and then you've got that next to an open oxygen container so explosion plus oxygen container whoa like really dangerous and there are stories of people like you know blowing up their shed but just running the the ozone through water because that's safe and you can buy ozone generators that have a little bubbler on them yeah that's Uh, what mine has yeah it has a little bubbler on it and you can buy ones that do that that don't that can actually concentrate enough ozone from the environment and doesn't even need an oxygen tank Oh, interesting. Because the amount of ozone that you're going to put into the water, you're only going to get a certain concentration anyway. Um, So you can buy one of those units and you'll ozonate your water with that. You can do it with the other ozone machines and use oxygen and generate it and all that sort of stuff. That's fine. But they make ones that will actually generate enough ozone from ambient air to ozonate water. And the, the other thing about ozonated water is it's very ethereal. Like if you ozonate your water, you leave it out for about an hour, all the ozone will be gone. So you have to drink it immediately. Right. But yeah, just just a safety tip for home. And it tastes like pool water. It's not something you. It's not enjoyable. <laughs> but I'm just wondering, like, does it get down? Is I was just thinking of it, like, is that useful for SIBO? Because I know SIBO is super common. You could certainly try. It wouldn't hurt. I think it's 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 good for oral esophagus and stomach. I think after that, by the time it gets through stomach, I don't think you're going to get a whole lot of ozone into the into the smaller, large gotcha. intestine. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's also useful. That's useful for like all biotoxins. So whether it's mold, lime, or mold, lime, you know, people who've got ciguatera. Um, I've treated people with with history of ciguatera poisoning with it. Um, you know, any kind of environmental toxin that you're trying to get rid of, because the ozone is really just making your whole body work better. Now it's true, you're not wrong. Like the doing blood ozonation is not cheap. Um, you know, the, the, the process is, you know, the costs are variable depending on the setting you're in and what sort of procedure. Like if you're doing a single bag versus like a 10-pass treatment, obviously the 10-pass treatment will be even more. We also do a procedure called EBU, which is uh, extracorporeal blood ozonation and oxygenation. It's also been referred to as ozone dialysis, where we use two veins. We draw blood out of one side and then we run it through a dialysis filter. And while it's in the filter, we expose it to ozone and oxygen and then back into the other side. So you get the benefit of the filtration on top of the ozone. Um, and so those sort of things, you know, in my opinion, I think they're worth the investment. But also it's it's all about it's all about timing. So it's like, well, when should I do these things? And in, in what order should I do these things? And what else should I be doing while I do them? 
um because that's that's really how you get the the most out of it right that's why you know it's you know for the listeners um you could do whatever you want i'm very pro freedom but if you hear this and you're like i want to try that to start out it's probably good to have a someone experienced guide you through that so right. you don't you know blow something so, up the, the, well yeah the, and the med spa experience of the ozone of a single bag of ozone um they they you know it's safe. Like, you know, there's, you should check for G6PD deficiency, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase. They should check that before they do it, because if you have deficiency of that enzyme, it can actually cause your red blood cells to explode when they're exposed to ozone. So it's a safety thing. So they should check your G6PD. Not everybody does, but they How should. How common is that genetic thing, that G6PD? It's like a 1% or less. Um, well, that's enough to be serious one percent chance you're gonna blow blow up your blood cells i check it often and i've diagnosed it and a lot okay. of people don't know they have it because you don't get that problem it's called hemolysis where the red blood cells lice or explode um you don't get that problem unless you're exposed to the appropriate oxidative stress so ozone oxidative stress the other thing that people will get is with certain types of drugs. So certain types of drugs can cause that reaction as well. So it's a good thing for people to know because like if you have that, like you shouldn't be exposed to certain types of drugs. Um, also foods, like the, the classic diagnosis of G6PD deficiency was called favism, F-A-V-I-S-M, favism, as in fava beans. So if you eat lots of, a bunch of fava beans, it can cause the reaction too. Um, that's a minor subset of the population that has it. Um, but it's more common in certain populations like uh, Mediterranean basin. So if you have a Mediterranean basin heritage, that's more common there. Okay. I had uh, one more question about the ozone. Um, so the thing that's really making the action is that third oxygen atom. Our body naturally makes a pro-oxidant, which is H2O2, which is basically H2O plus the other oxygen. Yeah. Is it working the same way because it has that extra oxygen that gets yeah. out and then does its thing just like ozone? So yeah, it's interesting because there's a whole section of, of you know functional medicine treatment you know that's oxidative therapy, right? So hyperbaric oxygen, oxidative therapy, ozone, H2O2, hydrogen peroxide. You know, that's what it is. You can give hydrogen peroxide in the IV. I had that a couple of yeah. times. Yeah, yeah. You can it felt it great. I remember it felt great. But it's like it was like 120 bucks a pop. And then I don't like getting needles. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you don't really like IVs, you know, that's another thing. But yeah, uh, and uh, high dose vitamin C because the high dose C generates the, the end of the reaction with high dose C is it generates hydrogen, hydrogen peroxide. So what happens there is like our normal healthy cells have an enzyme called catalase. And the catalase breaks down H2O2 into H2O, which is water, and that free oxygen, which we said was unstable and is going to find another oxygen like immediately. So H2O2 plus oxygen. So, so it's, it's like, really the same thing, same outcome, different angle. Different angle. The ozone is more intense and immediate burst. Ozone is, it tends to be a little bit, um, for people, it may be a little bumpier. Like it causes a little bit like more of like a, you know, it can cause a little bit stronger detox reaction or 
what we call Herx reactions, you know, from bacterial right. die off or the, other the problem is it works. Yeah. It works, but that's <laughs> okay. the problem. You're gonna feel it, man. And <laughs> and it's it's tough because like this, it's like this, the worse people are, like the sicker people are, the more they feel it. Um if you're like healthy and like the other thing is people do ozone therapies as like a longevity practice too, because it improves organ function. You know, people who are athletes like it because it helps with cardiovascular performance and workout recovery. I so, know. I mean, I've got, I got people come in here who are like, you know, amateur athletes and, you know, they like to CrossFit and they do all the, you know, they do marathons and triathlons and stuff. They come in, they get their ozone and they're like, I can't wait for my ozone. I'm going to run home. Literally, like they come to the office and they run home because they feel so good afterwards. Um, but that's, you know, it hits everybody a little different depending on what your what your current health status is. On the detox, because you mentioned the Herxheimer reaction. So for listeners, the idea is like if you kill off a lot of bugs, it releases a lot of toxins. So ultimately you're getting something you want, but it might not feel good along the way when you have that initial exposure. What are some of the like low hanging fruit, I guess, uh, practices that you deploy to your your patients to just support detox detoxification in general, so that yeah. you could you know be more aggressive with these herbs sure. or ozones or whatever. So there's there, we're kind of talking about two things. So there's detox reaction, which is an increase in circulating like toxic stuff. And then there's a Herx reaction, which is actually an inflammatory immune response from, you know, death of a microbe. Now, some microbes will release literally toxic, toxic things, particularly yeasts, fungus. Um, certain bacteria will release lipopolysaccharide, or which is lipopolysaccharides. Other name is endotoxin. What a great name. <laughs> what does that mean? Right. We're even poisoning e. ourselves. Exactly. Well, even E. coli has endotoxin, you know, so like that's a bacteria that lives in all of us. But um, so on the on the microbe side of the world, okay, um, an important thing to do is to modulate the immune response because what's happening in the setting of a lot of chronic infections, whether it's mold, yeast, fungus, or bacterial or viral, okay, um, is that the auto, the immune system is releasing excessive amounts of cytokines and other sorts of compounds that are are causing your symptoms. They cause the fatigue, they cause the brain fog, they cause the pain, all these sort of things. So we use substances that help to modulate that response and push it in a more positive direction so that it's actually killing things rather than killing you and putting those sort of products on board before you start killing things off is the most important thing to do. So um, I have a couple of different products I like to use. I'm, I, I have no affiliation with any of these people. I don't get any money from them, um, but I just use them and I like them. Um, Research Nutritionals makes a product called Cytoquel, C-Y-T-O, Cytoquel. Um, that's I'm a sorry, C-Y-T-O-Q-U-E-L, Q-U-E-L, Cytoquel. Okay. And it's a, it's a combination of a couple different modulators that help to decrease the, or help to improve the immune response. Other things that are, are just like one-offs or individual compounds are things like curcumin, um, quercetin. Um, I do a lot of herbs. And so like the herbal things that I use um, are things like Chinese skullcap, 
um, resveratrol, uh, kudzu, um, teasel. Now, what's funny about all those herbs I mentioned is like, they also are antimicrobial in their own way. So they're antimicrobial, but they're also immune modulators. So it's like, it kind of licorice, another one, licorice is, um, I kind of throw that into the mix a lot, helps your adrenals. Got to be careful with licorice and your blood pressure. As long as you're not hypertensive, it's, it's a safe one. Um, to support the hormonal axis as you go through all this sort of stuff. So I usually kind of sit down with each individual person to see where they're at. And I, before, like, let's say I do diagnose them with, you know, chronic infection, whatever that might be. I never am going to hit them with antibiotics right up front, even if I think they need them at some point. Um, because if you do, it tends to just throw you under the bus, like you really get worse. Um, we're going to start off by trying to modulate this inflammation a little bit by whatever seems appropriate for them. And then on the detox side of things, like invariably people who wind up with these chronic infections are, have also got other concomitant issues going on that are distracting their immune system from doing what it's supposed to do, whether that's mold or heavy metal or, you know, plastics, you know, like BPA or, you know, or, their, or parabens or, you know, uh, other sorts of nasty things that we get in our environment. So looking at what are those, what sorts of things they may be affected with over there, and starting support for them at the same time is also important. So we usually put those things on board first, and then we start saying, okay, well, now what are we gonna do? Okay, well, we're gonna start you on an antibiotic protocol. We're gonna up our game on some more like, you know, bactericidal or fungicidal herbs and all these sort of things. Oh, and last but not least, binder. Um, are there say- particular binders that you find over time have been like more successful, more reliable? So it, it depends on the, depends on the toxin. So, you know, for mold, you know, it depends on the type of toxins that you have. I kind of pick my binders based on what type of toxin is coming out in the urine. Um, but in general, things like charcoal, um, bentonite or zeolite clays, um, humic and uh, chlorella for some molds, glucomannan. Are, are there yeah. any risks of, of binders like... Um you know, stealing your minerals or whatever. Yes. <laughs> so that's, again, that's why all this stuff is best done under the supervision of someone who knows how to do it. I um, have definitely overdone everything at some point. If you made it, you're here, man. Look at you. Uh, yeah, I, I generally feel good. Um, <laughs> but good. yeah, but because, you know, when you're really feeling shitty, it's yes. like, oh, I'll do anything. I got to try. Again, like, right? you're so compelled to just yeah. try something. Correct. So and it's, it's hard yeah. to like modulate the gas and brake pedal yes. in the process. Oh, totally. Uh, like I, I now I know I'll yeah. use binders. Like I'll periodically go through a little cleansy thing, but it's like one pill every third day for a few weeks. That's enough. Like I don't. And where there was a time where it was like, how much can I take? Yeah. And that, that that didn't work well for me. So this is, the other thing is the patient's level of sensitivity. Now, some people can swallow a handful of like nine different binder pills every day for months, and they feel better. Like it helps them. Other people take like 
you know, they get a powdered charcoal and they take, you know, half a sprinkle and drink two sips of the water and they feel terrible. They just can't do it because the, the binders are not just like magnets, you know, gripping onto something and pulling it out. It's, it stimulates a whole cascade of reactions, you know, that, that people may or may not deal with very well. So I always titrate the amount of binder I give someone based on their level of tolerance. And um, as far as losing too much mineral or stuff like that, I mean, yeah, it, that is possible, though it usually happens with very high levels over long periods of time. Um, and also you want to make sure you take your binders separate from everything else. So like your, you know, charcoals, clays, chlorellas, um, all those guys, you want to separate them from the other supplements because if you take them at the same time as the supplements, they're going to tend to grab on to your, you know, Bs and your, your vitamin C and your quercetin. It'll grab onto those guys a little bit and it's not going to get the toxins as much. So it, it, they'll be more effective if you take them separated. We say by in our practice, we say separated by at least an hour. Um, gotcha. That seems to work good enough. You'll read all kinds of binder regimens out there where people are like, oh, it's got to be two hours away on a perfectly empty stomach. And, you know, make sure you run around your house twice before you do it. Like, I'm like, look, try to separate it by an hour. That's that's enough work because like it's hard enough doing this stuff. Gotcha. I have a lot more questions. We have barely got, we haven't got into like a diet and lifestyle, which I know is a plays a big role, but um figuring we just have maybe time for one more brief topic um there was something that I was kind of surprised to see on your website another thing that i've used with great success um cra cranial sacral therapy oh yeah which so, you're not usually used to seeing on a doctor's website yeah craniosacral is awesome I don't, I don't even do it. I receive it, but my nurse does it. So I've okay. got my nurse, Megan, uh, got trained in craniosacral and it is amazing. Um, it's particularly good for people who want an energetic slash relaxation treatment that are very sensitive to therapies. So some people like, they're like, you know, I really want something to help my, my, my anxiety, my nerves, my my headaches, my back pain, whatever, but I, I, I can't do mas massage hurts. I don't like acupuncture. The needles freak me out. Or like, you know, I, I even some people are so sensitive that like acupuncture is like, just doesn't work for them or they don't like it. Um, you know, and the craniosacral is, is, is a brilliant way to treat those things. It's um, the most relaxed I ever get when I get that it's the deepest relaxation that oh, i have experienced and i guess part of that is where the benefits are just yes. sending that safety signal of deep relaxation getting the parasympathetic uh, side of the nervous system turned on and like that signal that it's a safe time to heal correct but yeah. when i get up from the table it's like where did i just go like i just went <laughs> it's like you you go so deep and right. it's so subtle. Are you, I know you're not the practitioner, but are you well-versed on explaining what's going on there? Like how it works or. Well, I can tell you very briefly and that's, if we don't have a little time left, that's good because I can tell you what I understand about it. Um, I mean, it works on, you know, uh, regulating the flow of cerebrospinal fluid. So like our, 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 our cerebrospinal fluid, you know, it's secreted, you know, in special 
places inside the ventricles of the brain. It bathes around the brain and then down your spinal cord. And it has a circulation, but that circulation can be dysregulated or obstructed, okay? And what the craniosacral practitioner is doing is using their hands to feel subtle energy fields around your body and then help you balance them out. That's what it is. Now, it is an energetic process. It's not like they're pushing and and squishing this fluid up or down. It's super exactly. subtle. It's not like lymphatic massage of the brain. Right. Okay. right. For that lymphatic massage, you know, man, yeah, they're going to get into all the creep, all the crevices and just like really push it around. This is more like, okay, this, um, imagine it almost like, okay, this, this fishbowl is sloshing around too much. Like, how do I calm this fishbowl down? It's like, okay, you're going to kind of like, you know, wow, interesting. That's a cool analogy. Back and forth. Very gentle, subtle. And they'll use different pressure points. You know, it's called craniosacral because sacral for sacrum. So they use pressure points, you know, around your head, around your neck, shoulders, and then down, you know, around the pelvis, around your sacrum um, to help balance this out. And um, while it, it doesn't seem like they're doing much, <laughs> It does. It's because it's not like a massage where that, you know, good, strong, deep tissue massage. You can tell whoever's doing that. They're working up there, man. Like, they're right. Breaking. It's very different. Yeah. Oh, yeah. At first, I mean, you're like, oh, I wasted my money today. What if this person's not doing anything? Exactly. And then an hour later, you wake up and like, where? I just felt like I went to outer space. Exactly. Like, well, like, you're like, okay, you're done. It's like, but you only started five minutes ago. It's like, no, you've been like snoozing <laughs> for an hour, buddy. Yeah. It's like, like that. I, I love it. Yeah. So it's super good for anybody. That's great that you inter have that there. Oh, it's great. I mean, like acupuncture is another, is a great way to do it. That's a great way to do it. Um, Reiki is a great way to do it. Um, we also do acutonics sound healing, which is using, uh, uses the principles of Chinese medicine, except instead of needles, we use tuning forks. Oh, cool. So we use different types of tuning forks on the body, off the body. Oh, I would like to try that. Oh, if you like craniosacral, you'd love acutonics. Like it's... I would like to come down to Miami this winter because <laughs> I'm already starting to get um, sad that the sun is leaving Maryland and my tan is basically gone. <laughs> um, so yeah, I would like to come down and 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 get a session of that. That's something I. It's right up my alley. Oh, you'd love it, and. This is also part of where we get into the spiritual side of things. I mean, and this, we, we work inside of anyone's spiritual framework. You know, it's not specific to one thing, um, but that's, you know, another, another level of energetic treatment, you know, where you can help people to access rebalancing, you know, that psycho-spiritual aspect of your life because our physical health problems are affected there too. You know, and sometimes that's part of what's causing the physical dysregulation. Oh, for sure. And and we believe that you need, you gotta, you, you should, I want people to be able to access all those levels. And that's part of the reason why we offer so many different therapies is because we want people to use the therapy that's going to work for them. Because like some people would, will tell them, you know, oh, you should go do some EMDR work or you should go do hypnosis. And for whatever reason, they're like, well, I don't know. Hypnosis sounds too much like mind control for me. It's I don't I don't like that. Or my my religion says I, I really shouldn't do that sort of work. I'm like, well, then you know, try craniosacral, try acupuncture, or you know, we have neurofeedback things that we do. Yeah. Great. So there's there. there's different ways to access these things. 
I'm um, I'm like you. I'm an experimenter, so I do all of them <laughs> and love every one of them. Yeah, I I like them all too. It's just you know you have to you can't do all those things all the time. No, you're right. Um, yeah, I feel like we might have to run this back and get around to and touch on a lot of the uh, more basic like diet and lifestyle things that I'm sure you discuss. But it was, you know, we discussed some things today that I haven't really touched on on the podcast, like the ozone in particular. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time, Chris. If folks want to learn more or check check out session, um, or and also a question: Do you do telemedicine or is it all in house? So we prefer to do things in person. Certainly, at least for your first visit, we can do telemedicine visits, but um, particularly for our more complicated patients. Um, we get our best success when people can actually come in the office and, and take advantage of all the things that we do. Miami is not a bad place to have to go to see not, the, not a bad place. Some extra healing on the beach after the session with you. Exactly. Um, so how do they find them more? So uh, you can check out our website. Our website's www.miamibeachcwc.com as in Miami Beach Comprehensive Wellness Center. MiamiBeachCWC.com, and all our contact info is on the website, as well as a lot of other information, blog posts, and you know, um, overview of everything we do. Great. Well, Chris, thank you for taking the time, uh, and for the listeners, always grateful, of course, for you listening. And I look forward to our paths crossing again sometime, Chris. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed. Have a great day. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. If you find yourself having difficulty healing from something and you want a different approach and you haven't tried functional medicine, then I do recommend checking it out. Um, I love the idea that Chris's place kind of has a, as he said, has a, a foot in each side, Eastern and Western. And I think that is a, a, a model that has a potential for just tremendous success for many people. So especially if you're having trouble making progress and if you haven't checked out the functional medicine route, in my experience, they do ask the right questions and could get you at least headed in the right direction. Um, so if you know somebody that might be struggling, maybe you could send this conversation their way. I hope you enjoyed. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.